Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, through to chapter 5, uh, verse 16, and it can be found on page 1504 of the Black Church Bibles. Just give you a moment if you need to find that. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfil what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and illness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralysed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth but if the salt loses its saltiness how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Morning, everyone. My name's Mark. If we haven't met, I'm on the staff team here at Trinity Church Allgate as an associate pastor. It's great to be with you this morning. Now you've hopefully got a service leaflet as you've walked in. If you do, you'll see that there's a sermon outline on the inside, so that just helps you to follow along a bit with where we're we going over the next few minutes. 
you'll see the, the first heading I've got on the outline is called A Classic Sermon Begins. Now, I'm not talking about the one I'm about to give, but one that Jesus gave. Like, I'm hoping mine will be okay, but it's not going to be quite up there with what Jesus did. And we see Jesus, the, the start of this sermon from Jesus at the start of Matthew chapter 5, uh, which we've just read. It's commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the most famous passages in the Bible. And as we continue to read through it over the coming weeks, we're going to find lots of really thought-provoking quotes and teachings that Jesus gives. There's the radical command that we'll see later in chapter 5 to turn the other cheek when someone strikes us. We'll get to chapter 6 and see the warning that we cannot serve both God and money, as well as the rhetorical question Jesus asks of who can add a single hour to their life by worrying. We'll then get to chapter 7 where Jesus tells us not to examine the speck in someone else's eye and ignore the plank in our own eye, as well as his command to follow the, the narrow path and the narrow gate that leads to life rather than the wide path and the wide gate that leads to destruction. That's really just scratching the surface of what is an amazing set of teaching from Jesus that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. But what is the Sermon on the Mount all about? What is Jesus actually trying to achieve with this teaching? Is it a, a set of instructions on how Christians are supposed to live their lives? Or is it a bit more than that? Is it, is it showing how the intent of the law is fulfilled in the heart lives of Christians? Well, it's both of those things, but it's actually so much more than that as well. Looking carefully at the passage that we've just read, it becomes clear that Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is grounded in the call to be on mission, to fish for people, as Jesus puts it. These are instructions for mission that Jesus is giving, instructions for the greatest fishing trip in human history. Now, what the the context and the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount show us is that the Christian life is a life of disciple-making, and it's a life lived knowing our need for God's grace. If you were here last week, you would have heard about Jesus being baptized and then going into the desert to be tempted Jesus now begins his public ministry, and he begins it, verse 17, 4 verse 17, by preaching that the kingdom of heaven has come near, and he calls disciples to follow after him. And there are two things about this call that Jesus makes to these disciples that really stand out. Uh, the call he makes, firstly to Peter and Andrew, then to, to James and John. First thing that stands out is the decision to follow after Jesus is all in. You know, Peter and Andrew leave their nets behind and they follow Jesus. James and John leave their dad in the fishing boat and follow after Jesus. Following Jesus takes priority over everything else. And the second thing that stands out is that it's a call to mission. Follow me, Jesus says, and I will send you out to fish for people. This is really the mission statement of discipleship. Who here is a fan of the Mission Impossible movies? Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible, anyone? How how does every Mission Impossible movie start? It starts with Tom Cruise's character, Ethan Hunt, being told, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is whatever the mission is 
And then the rest of the movie is Tom Cruise going about his business, getting that mission completed. Well, this is the mission statement of discipleship right here. This call to, to fish for people is right at the heart of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a Christian. Now, is that how you think of Christianity? It's more, more than just having good morals. It's more than just following Jesus ourselves. But it's being on mission to see other people know Jesus and to become a part of this kingdom of heaven. So Jesus calls these men to follow him, and then he goes throughout Galilee teaching preaching about the kingdom of heaven and healing people's sicknesses and demon-possessed demon people. News about this spreads pretty quickly, as you can imagine, and before too long, crowds of people are traveling great distances to see Jesus. Now, we read about a few locations that are listed here. Syria was an area that stretched out for miles to the north of Galilee. Uh, the Decapolis, that was the name for 10 cities that were out to the east a bit. And Jerusalem was about 100 kilometers south. The region of Judea was quite a, a distance to the south. So to put it in terms that we're probably a bit more familiar with, if Jesus was teaching and preaching in the Adelaide CBD, uh, we've got people coming down from the hills to see him. We've got people from the northern suburbs. We've got people all the way from Victor Harbour making the journey in to see him. And this, this was a couple of years before cars were invented as well. So this is a lot of people walking a, a great distance to see Jesus. So great crowds are converging on Jesus from all directions. So what, is, what does Jesus do to address the crowd? Well, he goes to a mountain, he sits down, and he begins to teach his disciples. Now, the crowd was probably within earshot of a lot of this as well. We get to the, the end of the Sermon of the Mount in chapter 7, and we hear that the crowds were amazed at Jesus' teaching. But this is first and foremost instructions that Jesus is giving to his disciples. Now, we've seen four of those disciples who Jesus has just called. Uh, it's quite possible that Jesus has already called the rest of his 12 disciples as well. We just haven't seen it specifically mentioned here. Uh, so Jesus has seen great crowds of people, people who need to hear and believe the news about the kingdom of heaven. And so he instructs his disciples on how they can reach these people. This is Jesus' ministry pattern. We see it throughout his ministry. He sends his disciples out to make disciples for the kingdom. We'll see later on in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends his 12 disciples out. He gives them authority to, to teach and to heal people and to cast out demons. After his resurrection, of course, Jesus sends his disciples out and tells them, to make disciples of all nations, teaching them the things that Jesus has taught to them. Jesus uses us, his disciples, to make more disciples. To be a Christian is to be someone who has been called to be a part of this mission. And it's this mission that Jesus is preparing his disciples for as he makes this famous sermon. And he begins the sermon from chapter 5, verse 3, with what we commonly know as the Beatitudes. And these are something of a, a portrait of the life of a disciple. Uh, it's both the, the character of the disciple and the rewards that the disciple is living for. And it's a bit of a, a, bit of a paradoxical portrait in many ways, isn't it? On the one hand, it, it says that we're blessed, and yet we're also poor 
mourning, hungry, and persecuted. And so it's two, it seems like two contrasting pictures here. Now, there are two important ways that the Beatitudes describe the life of a disciple of Jesus. I've got them both on the outline there. Uh, the first one is that the life of a disciple is a life that flows out of spiritual poverty. Verse 3 there, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, this is the key to the heart attitude of a disciple. We need to understand our spiritual bankruptcy, to know that in our, in our own strength, by our own efforts, uh, we aren't good enough to please God. Because of sin, we fall short of who God created us to be. Uh, there's a wedge between us and God that sin creates, and even our best efforts isn't enough. It's not enough to, to bridge that gap, which means that we need Jesus. Jesus dying in our place is the only way that we can be made right with God. Even on our best day, we depend 100% on the cross to be forgiven and to be made right with God. So the life of a disciple is a life that is humbly lived under God's grace. I think this is really powerfully illustrated in the movie, not the movie, well, it is a movie, but the musical as well, Les Mis, if anyone's familiar with that. Um, if, you, if you know the, the general plot of that musical, you'll know that the, the main character is a guy called Jean Valjean. It's a French name. It's set in France a couple of hundred years ago. And he's, he's been in prison for about 20 years, and he's finally been released on parole. And he decides he's going to break that parole. He goes to a church. He steals some gold and silver from the church, and he decides to, to make a run for it. He gets caught by the police, he gets taken into custody, and it looks like he'll spend the rest of his life back in prison. But the bishop of the church actually comes along and says that the silver and gold was a gift from him. And so Jean Valjean is able to walk free, a free man, saved by grace that he didn't deserve. And as the, the plot of the, the musical unfolds, we see that he constantly looks back to that and he recognises that he lives a life under grace. He owes his freedom to someone else, and that really profoundly shapes the way that he lives his life. There's another character as well in, in the film called Inspector Javert. Now, he's a, a policeman who has really dedicated his life to tracking down Jean Valjean and getting him back into prison. And it reaches a bit of a climax when Valjean actually saves Javert's life. And Javert is left realizing that he's in the exact same place that Valjean was. He's, his life is one that he owes to someone else. He lives under grace. But unlike Valjean, he can't handle that, and he ends up taking his own life rather than living it under grace. So it's a real contrast of how two different people respond to living a life under grace. Now, if you're here this morning as a follower of Jesus, is this something that you're convinced of? That when it comes to you and God... You bring nothing to the table. Now, take it that this is the very first instruction that Jesus gives in his mission instructions because it's mission critical. I'm not a disciple who's ready to make other disciples if I haven't first owned my own spiritual bankruptcy, if I don't live each day with the cross of Christ as my frame of reference. Because it's at the cross where our self righteousness dies 
where we realize how much we rely completely on God. And that's the foundation for telling this good news to other people. And a good indication that we've owned our own spiritual bankruptcy is that we recognize in ourselves some of the other traits that we see from verse 4 onwards, these other marks of discipleship, because they all flow out of spiritual poverty. If I know that I live as a sinful person who is saved by grace alone, I'll mourn. I'll mourn at all the ways that I, that I fall short of, the, of how God wants me to live. I'll hunger and thirst for a life that honors God, both my own life and the lives of other people as well. I'll be meek rather than asserting myself on other people for my own advantage. And I'll be merciful, knowing the mercy that's been shown to me. I'll endure any persecution or evil that comes my way from knowing Jesus. The heart life of the disciple that that Jesus describes here is also very consistent with what we see in the Old Testament, particularly around the time of the, the exile to Babylon. If we look at Isaiah chapter 61, God declares that good news will be proclaimed to a poor, broken-hearted, mourning people. A people whose spiritual poverty is, is on full display for the world to see. And it's a promise that finds its fulfillment years later in Jesus and the kingdom of heaven. So discipleship flows out of spiritual poverty, and it's also focused on the reward of heavenly riches. That's the second sub-point in the outline there. The blessings that Jesus declares in these verses are the reward for members of the kingdom of heaven. There's the promise of comfort and fulfillment to those who mourn their lack of righteousness. The promise of inheritance for those who give up much in this life. The promise of seeing God. Jesus is saying here that no matter what happens in this lifetime, when the kingdom of heaven is properly and finally revealed, it's going to be all more than worthwhile. But they're not all future promises, are they? This isn't all stuff in the distance. In verses 3 and 10 here, Jesus says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, not will be, is. Disciples of Jesus are present members of the kingdom of heaven. And so even though these kingdom blessings are only going to find their complete fulfillment in the the distant future, we have a taste for them in the here and now. We have the comfort of knowing that Jesus has dealt with our sins and taken our punishment, even if we still mourn the present consequences of those sins. We have the assurance of God's mercy now. We, um, we have the ability to be able to call him father, to be his sons and daughters, that great security, even if we haven't yet seen him face to face. The life of a disciple won't always be an easy one, but in the end, it will be a magnificently rewarded one. So the heart motivations of the disciple, Jesus says, are the grace that we live under and the kingdom rewards that we've been promised. That, that sets the framework for discipleship. And then verses 13 and 16 really dig into how that, how that plays out outwardly for other people to be able to see in the world. Jesus uses three illustrations here. He uses salt 
He uses light and he uses a town on a hill to, to illustrate how distinctive the life of a disciple should be for the rest of the world. It should stand out. It should be like a light in a dark house, like a, a city that's built right on the top of a big hill and like the taste of salt in a meal as well. In fact, with salt, there's probably a double meaning that, that Jesus is using here. So back in, our, back in that day and, of course, in our day as well, salt is used not only to flavour food but also to preserve it. And so there's, there's a sense in which the life of a disciple should preserve what is good in human society. But the, the key message that, that Jesus is driving here, which comes, comes to a head in verse 16, is that the disciples should live a life of good deeds that lead other people to glorify God, a distinctive life that points others to God. Matthew has said earlier, right at the start of the, the passage that we've read today in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, that Jesus came as a light to those living in darkness, as a fulfillment of prophecy there. So Jesus came as a light to, living, to those living in darkness. Jesus now tells his disciples, you are the light of the world. The kingdom of heaven is made visible to the world through you. So there's a sense in which we're a bit like the moon, really. Like you think about the moon, it's, it's just a, a big rock up in space, nothing, nothing particularly special, uh, but it shines brightly because it shines, it reflects the light of the sun down to us. And there's a sense in which we're, we're a bit like that in reflecting Jesus' light to those around us in our lives. And so if our mission is to make disciples, we need to live lives that are consistent with that mission. My wife, Alicia, was um, catching up with a friend, and this is a friend who's got a bit of a church background but doesn't, doesn't attend regularly, and they, they got, got into a really good conversation about Christianity, and the friend said that, um, you know, I've actually I've thought about Christianity a bit, but I've just found it a bit hard because I've got Christian friends in my life who just have not been nice people at all. They just haven't lived lives that are con consistent with that. Now, she made it clear that Alicia wasn't one of those, just so we're, we're totally clear. But um, it's, it's sad, isn't it, that someone, someone might have a barrier to Christianity through the way that other Christians have behaved. The world needs to see disciples of Jesus living distinctively good lives, being a noticeable, positive presence in the world. Now, Jesus, what Jesus doesn't say here is, let your light shine so that people may see your good deeds and think that you're a really great person. That's almost what he says, but not, not quite what he says. No, the aim is for people to see our good deeds and to glorify God, which suggests that our deeds need to be accompanied by words. People need to be able to connect our behaviour with the loving God who we're living for, the good news of the kingdom of heaven that we're living in response to. And that also raises a bit of a deeper question, doesn't it? Which is, whose glory am I seeking in my life? Who am I trying to make look good today? Me or God? Who do I want people to think highly of? 
Now, if that's not a slightly challenging question for you to think of, then I wonder if perhaps you haven't thought about it deeply enough. Because all of us, myself very much included, we care about how people perceive us. We want people to think highly of us. The challenge for the disciple is to live a life that brings glory to God rather than one that brings glory to me. Because a person doesn't become a disciple and enter into the blessings of the kingdom of heaven when they realize what a great person I am. They do it when they recognize their need for Jesus, when they're brought to repentance and they live with Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The reality is, though, and most, if not all of us, would know this from personal experience, our good deeds aren't always going to cause everyone to respond favorably to us. We know that quite often the biblical view on certain issues is quite repulsive for people in this world. So Jesus has already mentioned here that persecution is part of the expectation for a disciple. The light that we shine isn't always going to be a light that people want to see, but it is one that they need to see, and it's one that we're called to shine. And so as we reflect on the call to disciple-making that Jesus gives and the instructions for disciple-making, the mission instructions that he gives to us, there are questions that we, we need to go away and to think about. Firstly, who am I on mission to? Who are the, the people in my life who, they don't know Jesus, but they do know me? And do I long to see them know Jesus, to experience the blessings of the kingdom of heaven for themselves? And secondly, am I beginning this mission on the right foundation? And that foundation, of course, is an awareness of my own sin and my own unworthiness, but also an, a glorious awareness of God's grace. The fact that I'm counted as worthy in God's sight because of Jesus' finished work. Is that the foundation for my mission? And lastly, what opportunities do I have to, to stand out as salt and light in the world this week for God's glory? To show the difference that, that Jesus has made in my life and be ready to, to share with other people about it. We'll see over the next few weeks as we continue to unpack the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus actually begins to illustrate what it looks like to be the light of the world. Next week, we're, we're actually going to have a guest speaker next week. We'll be taking a bit of a break and looking at John chapter 1 and thinking about reading the Bible to, to other people. Uh, but we'll be back on the week after that, continuing on through the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll be looking through, as Jesus unpacks, what it means to be the light of the world, what that looks like in various ways. So we'll get, to, we'll get to see a bit more of that. But to finish on, if you're a Christian, you're a disciple of Jesus, called not just to follow Jesus, but to, to join in his mission of making disciples. And we do that in response to the undeserved grace that we live under and the rich rewards that are ours in Jesus. And we do it by living lives that point people to God, that they may glorify our Father in heaven and enjoy the wonderful blessings of the kingdom. Let's pray for that. Father in heaven, we give you great thanks that 
uh, through Jesus, you call us to be members of your kingdom, that you call us to follow you, and that by your grace, you give us blessings that we don't deserve. Father, help us to take heed of the call to mission, to know that following Jesus means being on mission for Jesus, and it means pointing people to him in our lives. We pray that you would help us to recognize what that looks like in our lives, to have a heart for the people in our lives, in our community, who don't yet know you. And please help us to begin that on the right foundation, to not be self-righteous, to not be reliant on our own goodness and our, our own skills and talents, but to know that we stand completely under your grace. And as we reach out to others, please help us to know that we need this good news as much as anyone else. Please give us opportunities and wisdom to be salt and light in your world this week, uh, that our lives and our words might point people to you and bring people to put their trust in you as their Lord and Saviour. Amen.